All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 36, Paul writes, But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. I think there's only one person here that uses the ESV currently. I know Lori does, but was it a little different in reading verse 36? Yeah, okay, we'll get to that. (laughs) Um, So just a little recap from what we looked at last week when we looked at verses 25 to 35. uh, We uh, saw in those verses, Paul here is starting to give his advice. So he has just given us a principle in verses 17 through 24 uh, to sort of bloom in the position or the place in which God has called you, to bloom where you're planted. That is his principle. And then he sort of applies that throughout the rest of the chapter in verses 25 to the end of the chapter as he gives his apostolic advice. If you remember, we said he's not commanding here because in verse 25 he says, I have no commandment from the Lord. In other words, the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry did not teach on these things. He says, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. So he's giving his advice. He's not making commands here. Because as we saw last week, and as we'll see again this week, the advice he gives is based on the situation that's going on in Corinth, the present distress. And most of his advice tends to say, don't get married. (laughs) Uh, If you're single, stay as you are. If you're single, you're, you're... liberated from trouble in this in the flesh if you're and that's what he says in verse uh, 28 i would uh, spare you from that trouble Uh, if you're married you know he goes on in verses 32 to 35 if you're married you're you're concerned about the things of this world whether you have to please your husband or your wife whether you have to pay your bills make ends meet make sure you don't have too much month at the end and not enough paycheck at the end right Uh, so he wants to spare them the trouble so he's, he's drawing upon these things. He's speaking his capacity as an apostle to give them his advice, his judgment, as he calls it. And again, this, contra- this, this advice is given in the context of the present distress, of the fact that the situation that they're in is something that is distressing, <laughs> to, to use the word distress, or, you know, defining the word with itself. Um, and when we looked at that last week, we said the present distress could be something that was going on in Corinth at that given time, at that point in time that Paul is addressing. And that's possible, and I don't, I don't discount that. But based on what he says in verses 29 through 31, where he talks about the time is short, and he talks about the form of this world is passing away, I think Paul is using present distress in what I would call an eschatological framework. So and, uh, he is looking at the time that we're in 
And he's seeing that the time is short. We are in the last days. The New Testament talks about that. We are in the last days. So his advice is based on this. His advice is he's looking at marriage in light of the imminent, I-M-M-I-N-E-T, not the immanent with an A in there, the imminent or the soon return of Jesus. And again, he wants to spare them trouble in the flesh. So he prioritizes singleness given the present distress. Because singleness allows one not only to avoid the troubles of the world, to avoid the cares of the world as, as much as, you know, more so than a married couple would, but also because being single allows you to serve the Lord in a more singular focus, which is what Paul does. Paul is single now. He is, by all accounts, a widower. His, more than likely, he would have been married because he was a Pharisee. He was a devout Jew. Uh, it's more than likely he would have been married, but at this point in time, he is not. But again, he doesn't forbid marriage. Time and time again, he says, if you marry, you do not sin. So he, he, he emphasizes that. Now, um, I did want to talk about marriage. So a little excursus on the beauty of marriage. Because again, if, you, if, if this is the only exposure to the Apostle Paul's teaching on marriage, how would you come across, how, how would you say he thinks about marriage? Not very highly at all, right? He's like, don't get married. Stay single. You're better off. I'm going to spare you trouble. So I want to I talk a little bit about marriage because, I, now I don't think Paul, obviously I don't think Paul devalues marriage because in other places he talks about how marriage is a beautiful picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. But Paul is obviously single as he writes this. But if you do a quick search on the internet, you could find all kinds of books and articles and websites that talk about Paul as if he were some kind of misogynist. The misog- I didn't even read any of the articles. I just put, I, t- I typed in my Google search bar, Paul misogyny, and it just, you know, thousands and thousands of, of results and articles talking about Paul was a misogynist. Of course, most of these articles are written by people who wouldn't know a Bible if it hit them in the backside, but most of them who are unbelievers are so-called liberal Christian scholars, uh, because Paul is famous for writing that women should submit to their husbands, that women should be taught to serve their husbands, that women should be silent in the church, that women aren't allowed to hold authority in the church. And then we see here in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to be talking down the institution of marriage. So, you know, that's, it doesn't surprise me that the unbelieving world will look at that and say, Paul was a misogynist. Paul, was, he just didn't like women. He didn't, like, he didn't want to be married to a woman. Well, of course, my answer to that question is Paul misogynist is a resounding no. In fact, given the culture in which Paul writes, he would probably have been considered a feminist in his day. Uh, he spoke very highly of women and the value of women in the culture, in a culture in which women were treated as property, as objects, something to be bartered and traded for. So back to the context of marriage. So what does the Bible say about marriage? Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians and flip over to Genesis 1. And we all know that, Genesis, uh, that marriage can be traced all the way back to the beginning, the very beginning. And in Genesis 1, 
starting in verse 26, after God has spent six days creating, uh, creating and then populating, the first three days are sort of creating and separating, and then the last three days, four, five, and six, are populating the creation. So he separates light from dark, he separates water from earth, he separates uh, seas and so on and so forth, and then he starts to populate. He populates the air, he populates the seas, and he populates the earth. And this is within the context of the sixth day in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here we go. God creates man in his image. Both men, male and female, both man and woman, are both in the image of God. No one is, man is not more in the image of God than woman. And he gives them a command. He, tell, he blesses them, and he gives them a command. Now fill the earth. Fill the earth and multiply. Fill the creation with the image of God. Fill the creation with the glory of God. Subdue the things that have been here. You've been given dominion over all of the earth. Rule it as, as my vice regents. And flip over to Genesis 2. Starting in verse 23, which is a recapitulation of the creation. It's not a second creation, as some oddballs have taught, but it's a recapitulation. It's sort of zooming in on the creation of man. In verse 23, after uh, God placed man in the garden and he named all the animals, he then puts man to sleep because God sees that Man is not good for the man to be alone, so he puts him into a deep sleep, removes one of his ribs, and fashions woman. And then when he presents the woman to Adam, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So again, before the fall, before any other human institution, whether government or anything else, marriage was instituted by God at the beginning to be the vehicle through which human society would grow and flourish. Marriage was the, the foundation, and the family becomes the foundation of society and flourishing in the creation. Man and woman both created in the image of God, both complementing one another, not like, oh, how beautiful you are, but I mean the idea that they fit together, they complement one another, they are made for one another, together they glorify God by being a one flesh union of two creatures created in the image of God for the propagating of the image of God throughout the world, again, as I said, filling the earth with the glory of God. Problem is, of course, like with everything else, uh, after chapter 2 of Genesis, what comes next? Chapter 3 of Genesis. <laughs> it's kind of interesting how that works out, right? 3 follows after 2, 
And in chapter 3, you have the fall. You have the fall. And marriage, like everything else in God's good creation, was ruined by the fall. But it was created by God in the beginning before the fall. So marriage is a pre-fall institution. right? You don't get government and you don't get all these other things until after the fall. But before the fall, marriage was a pre-fall institution. You can go back now to 1 Corinthians. So the Bible makes quite clear that marriage is between one man, one woman. So polygamy, which is many wives, many typically it, 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 when it's referred to both genders, it's just many spouses, but the, the root of the word is many wives. And that's how you always see it practiced in the Bible, right? It's always a man who's got like, two or three or ten or, in the case of Solomon, many, many, many wives. Polygamy, while not explicitly forbidden, right? There, I can't find a commandment that says, thou shalt not marry more than one wife. It is not approved. It is certainly not approved. It is certainly implied from the beginning, right? One man, one woman in a one flesh union is implied that is no additional people added in there. And if you look at the, every case in the Bible of polygamy ends poorly, Right, you know, you you have uh, uh, you know poor poor uh, Jacob. Right, he gets saddled with a second wife, and it doesn't end up well for him. Right, I mean, there's the one scene I kind of joke about it, but there's that one scene where um, Rachel and Leah are arguing. Right, and and Leah's son finds some mandrakes, and Rachel, who hasn't had any children yet, says, "Give me your son's mandrakes," and she says, "Well, then you have to let me." sleep with Jacob tonight. And she's like, fine, let's do it. So then Jacob comes home out of the field after a hard day doing whatever Jacob was doing. And then Leah meets him at the door and says, ha you have to lie with me tonight. I almost pictured Jacob just like turning around and just walking back out into the field. Having two wives was not pleasant in that situation. Think about Abraham too, when he didn't technically have two wives, at least not at the same time, but he did sleep with his wife's servant, Right? It was uh, Hagar, his servant. And that didn't end up well, right? Because the minute she bore a child, Sarah, whose plan it was, says, get the slave woman out of my house. She, she, she vexes me, and her son vexes me. So every case of polygamy produces way more problems than it supposedly solves. Other perversions of marriage, right? Adultery. Uh, extra or premarital sexual relations are explicitly forbidden because they destroy the sanctity of marriage and often produce illegitimate children. They destroy the one flesh union. You are violating the one flesh union by engaging in these uh, extramarital uh, affairs. Any perversion of the one flesh union of one man and one woman is expressly, expressly forbidden by the time of Moses. And if you get, you know, you think about Leviticus 18, which goes down a list of things that you shouldn't do. Among them, of course, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, any kind of uh, consanguinity, any kind of relationship of a close relation um, is forbidden. And the reason it's forbidden is because God says so. But also, as God is giving those commands to Moses, he says, this is what's happening in the land that you're about to possess. Don't act like those people in the land that you are about to possess. 
So the blessedness of love and sexual relations in the marriage union is extolled in the Bible and beautifully depicted in the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on which translation you have, depends on how that book is named. You get a beautiful and wonderful picture of marriage in that book, how the, the beloved and the beloved are you know, yearning for one another and how they consummate their marriage and, and sexual relationship within that marriage is extolled and it's beautifully spoken of. And as beautiful and wonderful as marriage is, it, it, it itself, marriage, is also a picture, a beautiful and wonderful picture of a far deeper and theological truth. So now I want you to flip over to Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 22. So Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul here. Now all of this flows out of verse 21 where the idea of walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, is manifest and submitting one to another in the fear of God. And then he explains how that looks in the marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Verse 31, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's the key verse. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I like how in verse 30, Paul talks about we, the church, are members of his body. That's something we'll see later in 1 Corinthians. It's something we saw in Romans, how... The church is the body of Christ. He talks about it earlier in, in Ephesians as well. And of his flesh and of his bones, in that language, and then from that he goes on to quote from uh, Genesis 2.24 about how the woman is also flesh of his flesh and bones of his bones. That's what Adam says when he sees woman. This is indeed flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And Paul here is saying that the church is the flesh and bones of Christ. And then he goes on, this is a great mystery. This mystery, this something that has been sort of hidden in the old and now being revealed and made known in the present. And the mystery is this, that marriage, the institution of marriage is a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. 
The story of redemption can rightly be described, I believe, as the greatest love story ever told. Because in eternity past, the Father chooses a bride for His Son. His only begotten Son. His beloved Son. The Son willingly enters into a mission of rescue and redemption for His bride. The Spirit guards and keeps and seals the bride to the Son until the Son returns to claim His bride. Depicted beautifully as we will see, Lord willing, when we get to those chapters in Revelation, Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which that is, a, you know, again, a picture that describes the relationship of Christ and His church. As Christ returns, He returns to claim His bride. He spoke of this in His parables in Matthew 25. As the husband, the bridegroom comes into town, and everyone rushes out to meet Him, and it's the parable of the ten virgins. You know, it, the idea is preparedness, but the picture is the king is returning. He's coming to claim his bride and bring her home. That's how the marriage was consummated. It was, you were betrothed, then the husband would go off and sort of establish the home, and then when the home is ready, he would come and claim his bride and bring her back, and they would consummate the marriage. And then for all eternity, the son and his bride will live in wedded bliss in the eternal kingdom. So marriage is a, is a blessed institution instituted by God for the propagation of the image of God throughout His creation. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. And then finally, marriage, the actual institution of marriage, I probably should have reversed these points, but the institution of marriage is tied to this age. One more passage. Flip over to Luke. I could have picked... A couple of passages. It's in the, all three synoptics, but Luke kind of... I, I always seem to go to Matthew, so we're going to go to Luke. Luke chapter 20, chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. Now this is a well-known passage. This is Jesus. He's already in Jerusalem, and he's... It's Passion Week. It's, it's the week. It's after Palm Sunday. He's been teaching in the, in the temple for some time. And, and there's a day in which he engages in a lot of confrontation with the, with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees and, and with the scribes and the priests and the Levites and everyone. And they go back and forth and no one can stump Jesus. They, they, they try to capture Jesus in his words and Jesus it, because... He's Jesus, right? He, he manages to answer and refute every charge. So this is after the Pharisees kind of tap out, right? <laughs> like the Pharisees are like, okay, we tried, we failed. They turn to the Sadducees, their political opponents, which is, you know, this is, this is the interesting thing, right? It's like they're, they hated each other, except they hated Jesus more. So they, the Pharisees tap out. They say, okay, Sadducees, you come in. So the Sadducees, in verse 27 of Luke chapter 20, uh, and the Luke says, they who deny that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, that's, that's in the law, right? That's leveret marriage. That's where, you know, it's in order, it was instituted in order to keep the land inheritance with the tribe to whom it was given. So now they pose a riddle. Okay, so this is what the law says, uh, Rabbi. 
Now they posed their riddle. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, interestingly enough, a resurrection in which the Sadducees don't believe, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And now you can almost imagine them saying, Aha, we got you, Jesus. What are you going to say now? We got you. We trapped you. And Jesus answered them and said, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered him and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. (laughs) We can't get this guy. (laughs) He knows the scriptures too well because he wrote them, right? Um, Now, the key point there in the text is to disprove the idea that there's no resurrection because Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. For our purposes here, though, Jesus says that marriage is tied to this age, right? The sons of this age, verse 34. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But then he says, those who are worthy to attain that age, the age to come, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So, in other words, marriage is an institution that is tied to this age, to this world. When this world passes away, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the time is short, this form of this world is passing away, marriage will cease to serve its purpose. In the age to come, there will be no marriage. Why? Well, consider at least two reasons that I could come up with, and I'm sure there are more. Uh, If the purpose of marriage is to speak concerning Christ and the church, in other words, marriage is a picture that points to the relationship between Christ and the church, then in the age to come, it would have served its purpose because Christ and the church are now united. You no longer need a picture to point to the reality when the reality is present. It's what Paul says and argues for in Galatians when he talks about how the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster that led you to Christ. It was the shadow of which Christ is the substance. So once the substance is here, you don't need the shadows. You don't need the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Covenant practices, because the reality is here. All of those things pointed to Christ. Christ is here. They are obsolete. But second, again, marriage allowed for the propagation of the image of God to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. In the age to come, the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. Right? God will be present in, in Christ. There will be no temple because Christ and the church were there and they will live in all eternity. They will be glorified people living in a glorified world. The whole earth will be filled with His glory. So, as we wrap up this sort of excursus on marriage, all this to say marriage is a beautiful institution. It is a gift given by God to man for our benefit in this age and to point us to the age to come when we will be perfect 
in perfect, unbroken union with Jesus Christ. So now, finally, as we come into the passage this morning, and I've got to hurry up now. So we head into our passage. Don't worry, it's not going to take long. <laughs> uh, as I said, we'll be finishing chapter 7. And Paul now is going to finish giving his apostolic advice to the Corinthians. Because I said there was five groups that he gives advice to, and we're going to look at the last two here. As he gives advice to virgins in 36 to 38, and advice to widows in verses 39 and 40. So, as we come now to the fourth group of people in Corinth that Paul advises after stating his principles in 17 through 24, Paul begins to advise virgins in verses 36 to 38. Now you might say, well, didn't we already hear Paul's advice to virgins earlier, right in verses 25 to 28? Of, and you can go back to 1 Corinthians if I haven't figured that out already. But in verses 25 to, to 28, Paul says, now concerning virgins. So it's like, well, he's already given command, he's already given advice to virgins. We saw that yes, last week, and yes, he did. We'll see in a moment, there's going to be some rather big interpretive challenges here, particularly in verses 36 to 38. But I'll read them again for our benefit here, verses 36 to 38. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who seeks, who stands, sorry, stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Now, if you have New King James, you might have a footnote in verse 36 by the word virgin, where it says, or virgin daughter. Again, in verse 37, another footnote by the word virgin, or virgin daughter. And then again in verse 38, on the word her, which is in italics, which means it's supplied. It is not in the actual text, but it's supplied by the translators. There's a footnote there that says his own virgin. It's referencing to um, the other textual tradition. Now, again, if you don't have a New King James, I think there's only one here who doesn't. Um, you might be wondering if I was even reading the same verses, right? right? Um, now, again, I've mentioned this before. New King James uses a different Greek textual tradition than the ESV and pretty much every other English translation. But this is not a case of the different textual basis between the New King James and every other translation. This passage has historically been difficult to interpret. The first difficulty is found in verse 36 with the phrase, toward his virgin. And I already pointed out the footnote there. Now the New King James translates that closest to the original Greek. It's literally what it says, toward his virgin. The word parthenos is there, virgin. Now, if you have an ESV, which I know, Sue, you do, or NIV, or Christian Standard Bible, or New Living Translation, they all take a more interpretive approach. They all have something like betrothed, right, or engaged, or fiancé. Now, if you have a New American Standard, which I don't think anyone here does, but I do at home, if you have a New American Standard, which is considered to be one of the more literal ones, they actually add the word daughter in italics which is something that our translation here sort of 
implies could be added there, virgin daughter. They put the word daughter in italics in the text, indicating that the word daughter is not there, but they believe that's what it means, toward his virgin daughter, which takes a different interpretive approach. You have one that says betrothed people, and you have another group that says virgin daughters. Now, why am I mentioning all this? You might be thinking, it's like, why are you going through all of this? Because these are things you may not see just reading your translation, but kind of you need to know in order to sort of have a proper understanding of this text. Again, the debate is between a man and his fiancée and a man and his virgin daughter. Now, the majority report in scholarship, in commentaries, is that this passage is speaking of a man and his fiancée. So betrothed, that's why the ESV has betrothed. or other translations have fiancé or engaged. However, <laughs> I don't hold to the majority view here. And you may think, oh no, is this another one of those Armageddon things? Are we going to be good? No, no, it's not like that. Uh, I think a strong case can be made for the minority position, that this is a man and his virgin daughter. And I would argue for that minority report for the following reasons. I'm going to give you four First, Paul has already addressed betrothed people. He's already addressed the engaged, those who are engaged to be married in verses 25 through 28. If you are a virgin, if you are bound, then remain as you are. If you are unbound, then don't get married. He's already addressed those who are betrothed in verses 25 through 28. Second reason. The language in verse 36 where he says, his virgin, right? Toward his virgin. That's literally correct. And then later on he says, let them marry. Suggests a father with his daughter. Let them marry. If it's your virgin, your virgin daughter, and she wants to be married, let them marry. Let her marry the man she's engaged to. Third reason. This is the one where the ESV is going to throw you off. There's a phrase there. Past the flower of her youth which the ESV mysteriously translates, if his passions are strong. Okay, The past, the flower of her youth, that is more correct. It also suggests a father with his virgin daughter. He's got a daughter, and if she's getting on in age and she's starting to pass the flower of her youth, you might want to let her get married before she is actually past the flower of her youth. And then finally... Verse 38, you have the phrase there. So then he who gives her in marriage, which translates a word that is called, the word is engamidzo, which means to literally give in marriage, as speaks of a father giving his daughter in marriage. There's the word for married is just gamidzo. It takes off the prefix. So you've got a case in which you have a word that is used specifically to speak of a father giving his daughter in marriage. Again, you might say, well, why do I belabor all of this? Because I want us to properly understand what I believe this passage is teaching and what the Apostle's point is, which is this. Again, the Apostle's point, given the present distress that they're in, given the the fact that the time is short, Paul is advising fathers with unmarried daughters that if if that father can avoid Marrying his daughter off, he does well, given the present distress, given the fact that the time is short, given the fact that the form of this world is passing away.
But then he says, if she's getting past marrying age, right? That's the idea of the flower of her youth. If she's getting on in age, if she's getting on in the years, and, and he gives her in marriage, then Paul says, you're not sinning. You're, you're not doing something wrong if you give your daughter away in marriage. And as he has said in previous pieces of apostolic advice, he is giving his preference towards singleness. That's Paul's pattern throughout the whole section that we've been looking at. Paul is preferring singleness, again, given the fact that the time is short, the present distress, and so on and so forth. The form of this world is passing away. He wants, again, to spare the Corinthians the trouble in the flesh that marriage in this present evil age presents. But he, again, he says, if one marries, if he or she has not, he or she has not sinned, if you allow marriage, if, if marriage, again, is still a beautiful institution, if a father gives his virgin daughter in marriage, he does well. That's what Paul says. Just as if he doesn't, he does better. It's, again, it's in Paul's mind, given the situation, it is a situation between the good and the better, not between the bad and, and good. Okay? I think we looked at Martha and Mary last week, right? The story of Martha and Mary. What, Mary, what, what Martha was doing was not evil, she was doing good. What Mary was doing was she was choosing the better portion. Finally, let's wrap this up. Verses 39 and 40. The final group Paul addresses here are widows. Verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Now, I'm sure you'll be happy to know that there's no interpretive issues with this verse. It seems pretty straightforward. There's no linguistic issues with this verse. Uh, There's nothing controversial about it. There's nothing controversial about a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. There's nothing controversial about that. This is just emphasizing the fact that in Paul's mind, and the Bible teaches that marriage is a covenant. It is a lifelong commitment. You are bound by marriage as long as your spouse lives. It's why Paul earlier commands marriage partners who have divorced or have separated, either you better reconcile or you better continue to live as if unmarried until you reconcile. Marriage is literally a till death do us part commitment. Now this idea here where Paul says a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, he uses as an illustration in Romans chapter 7. So he uses that earlier to illustrate how Christians who are now dead, under, uh, dead to the condemnation that is found in the law are now free from the law. And as we spoke of earlier, uh, marriage is a one flesh union of one man and one woman for life. But obviously we see this in real life, right? One partner dies, leaving the other partner alive. And if this happens earlier in their life, if it happens at a younger age, the temptation and the desire to want to remarry is going to be there and strong. Now, Paul defaults to widows, I'm sure, because men typically have shorter lifespans than the women anyway. Uh, so he defaults to, to but it, it applies to widowers as well. And Paul's advice to the widow is, they are at liberty to be married to whom they wish. And then Paul adds a condition, only in the Lord. So if you are a widow or widower, and you wish to marry, you are free to marry. You are free to marry whomever you wish, only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. Marriage is a uniquely Christian institution, and only Christians 
can fully understand and enjoy the fullness of what, of what marriage means and offers. Now, while Paul earlier in the passage tolerated mixed marriages in verses 12 through 16, again, if you remember, those were mixed marriages in the context in which both spouses were unbelievers, and then one of them comes to faith. And in that situation, he says, don't divorce if the partner wants to stay with you. Because you never know. You might be the, reason, you might be the means that God uses to bring your spouse to salvation. But here... Christians ought not marry outside of the faith. Period. That's what Paul's saying here. If you want to get married, if you're a widow and you want to get... I mean, he's assuming in all the other cases that the father's giving his daughter to a Christian man. If you're a widow or widower and you want to get married, you have to marry in the faith. Period. If Paul's been hedging against marriage in chapter 7 due to the present distress, imagine marrying a non-Christian due to the present distress. Right, I mean, if you remember way back when we started chapter 7, in marriage you have what? You have one fallen person being united to another fallen person, and that makes what? The fallen union, right? You've already got troubles. You've already got troubles, and marriage is hard enough even between Christian spouses. Imagine introducing a non-Christian into the mix. You'll be facing the problems of this world the present distress, however you want to define it, all the problems engaged in the world, right, that Paul talks about in verses 32 to 35. How she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband, how the husband has to worry about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. All those things are now in the context of a, with a partner who does not share your worldview, with a partner who does not share your faith. Why would you subject yourselves to that? Well, maybe I can save him. No. <laughs> you, are, you are asking for more trouble than it's worth. But I love him or I love her. No, you are asking for more trouble than it's worth. Then again, as he's done all throughout the chapter, Paul adds his own apostolic sort of two cents in verse 40, where he says, but she is happier if she remains as she is. And not, again, he, he's been, this is not new, right? Paul's been doing this all chapter. If the widow wants to marry, she's at liberty. But, in my opinion, in my judgment, that's what Paul says, I think she will be happier if she remains unmarried. Or if he remains unmarried. According to my judgment. Again, it's between what, in Paul's mind, given the context, between good and better. He believes that the widow will be happier if she remains single. She can serve the Lord. She'll be liberated from the present distress, from the troubles in the flesh, and so on and so forth. Again, we need to understand this with all of the caveats and, and uh, qualifications that we've been mentioning all throughout chapter 7.